following Jesus isn't always easy, but it's not complicated. And here on the Rusty George Podcast, we hope to make real life a bit more simple. And today we're having a conversation with Jim Wallace, uh, otherwise known as Jay Warner Wallace, who is a former cold case detective and used his abilities to uh, try to tackle the resurrection and figure out if it was true or false and discovered it was true became a Christian after being an atheist for many years. I'm interested to hear from from Jim and his story and how he moved from being an atheist to a Christ follower and why he did that. What's the pieces of evidence that helped him? You may be listening today and you've got someone in your life that you think, boy, I would love if I could somehow help them become a follower of Jesus. And you think that they just need a little bit more evidence. This podcast will help you immensely. Uh, not only to connect with them, but also might even be something you want to share with them. So enjoy my conversation with Jim Wallace. Well, Jim, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Uh, I've been a fan of your work for a long time and really appreciate you sharing with our people over the past uh, a couple of visits you've made, one in person, one via video. Uh, but I want to start off with just what people are um, are initially curious about when they hear your story, and that's the cold case side of things. I mean, we've all seen CSI and we've all watched even the TV show cold case that was on for a while. And we've seen you on Dateline and, and, uh, all, all of the interviews you've done and tell us what do we not understand about cold cases? Because I think everybody thinks they're a bit of a crime solving expert because of CSI. What, what do we not understand? Yeah, that's that's a that's a good. You know, I think most of the stuff we see on TV is so misleading, right? I mean, we we have a sense that uh, we get a. Yeah, you know, I, I have young people come to me all the time and will ask questions about. Well, I, I think I'm interested in, in working in CSI, and and I have to kind of help them understand that mm-hmm. what you see on TV about any of these detective shows is probably not representative of what we really do, and a lot of this is about how meticulous are you. You know, what I'm trying to do from the very beginning with a cold case is think about it. Uh, how the, how it's going to end. Mm-hmm. And I try to teach this to new investigators. You know, when you're in patrol, you're thinking, well, do I have enough reason to make an arrest? Okay, well, all right, that's good, I guess. But but in the end, you got to be able to get this to the DA's office and the DA's got to be able to file it. So the real question ought to be, do I have enough here that ultimately the district attorney can file this case? Otherwise, we're going to cut them loose in 24 hours to 48 hours. Mm-hmm. So if we're not thinking long, we're not going to have anything to show for this. Now, once you start working investigations like I work, the question is not, do I have enough to take somebody to jail and get the DA to file it? But do I have enough to ultimately win this in front of a jury five years from now? Because it might take five years for us to get there. Mm. So so a lot of what we do in cold cases is we're thinking really long. You know, like we're planning out. And so I always, from the very beginning, I'm thinking about what is this? what does this case look like in front of a jury? Is it compelling? That, that helps you because the bar is so high for that, that I think that, that then you, if you've got a case that you think I can win in front of a jury, and then you can communicate that to the DA, well, the DA is more likely to file it. So, so by thinking about the end from the beginning, hmm. you end up um, being in a place where you can actually, so a lot of what we're doing in cold cases is we, I am thinking for me at least, is I'm not just knocking down one door after another and seeing where it leads. I'm actually thinking about the end of the journey and how do I get there from here? Mm. That makes sense. And so a lot of it is is really not so much about Sherlock Holmes. That's it's about like, are you a good master planner? Are you somebody who has the ability to think um, 
to step above the timeline and, and kind of see the timeline uh, from start to finish? And are you somebody who's going to be, I'll give you an example. One of these cases, we I opened the case in 2003. Is that right? Uh, no, I think I opened, yeah, 2003. I opened the case, pulled the book off the shelf. We wrote the first search warrant, I think, in 2007. I think the guy went to jail in 2009, and we convicted him in 2014. Oh, my goodness. So from 2003 to 2014 is 11 years. Now, we went to a bunch of other cases at the same time. But my point is, we we started thinking about 2014 in 2003. Right. You know, as we're writing the first search warrant, we're thinking, well, gosh, if we got this, if we had recovered this, would this be enough to make a case in front of a jury? That's what we're thinking about. So, so yeah, a lot of this kind of stuff is is uh, is really more strategic planning than it is the fun stuff you see on TV. It's not all wrapped up in 60 minutes, then, right? Oh, I, I've had, listen, I've been working with producers over the last five years on these, you know, ID channel and oxygen network and trying to figure out, you know, what kinds of, 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 of shows could we do? And they'll always come to me with this idea, like, you know, on cold justice is a show, I think on TNT. And there you've got a couple of, of a district attorney, I think, and a, and a criminalist who are working together to solve a cold case a week. And they actually, but those aren't the, not the kinds of cases that I work. Those are cases that really were almost solved to begin with. And this needed a little nudge. I mean, if you're working a real cold case, yeah, you can't do one a week. Right. Right. And if you, <laughs> and sometimes, you know, when Dateline comes in and they encapsulize this in one or two hours, right. it's really a joke what they have to leave out. Right. Because the reality of it is there were thousands of hours involved in that, that case, most of which were incredibly boring. Mm-hmm. Right. That's mm-hmm. just, and then of course you get to go make an arrest, and then you're in trial. That's exciting, right? <laughs> but a lot of the stuff we do is just, uh, uh, you know, if you're running a search warrant, for example, on on phone tolls, or today my son is doing this work, and and he's writing search warrants on social media. <laughs> he's writing search warrants on where was this guy when he posted that mm-hmm. on any platform. And it turns out that with if, if some of these platforms, uh, your phone is tracking your location even when you're not posting. Mm. And you can recover all that stuff. So if you're wondering, was that guy near the crime? You could actually recover that in a search warrant from digital media. Mm. He's watching a video on his phone or he's t- taking a, you know, it's it's amazing what you can do now. But that stuff, if you think about it, it's pretty boring, right? You're writing search warrants. It's pretty technical. And then all that just to get that, you know, five seconds of putting the cuffs on somebody. <laughs> That's the exciting part. Yeah, that's the exciting part. Let me just ask you, this is kind of off the record or not off the record, off the rails, so to speak, from our conversation. But why are we so fascinated with this stuff? Why are there so many of these shows and so many of these channels? I mean, my mother-in-law, she can't get enough. I mean, every day it's cold case files on one of these channels. Why, why Why are we so interested? Is it the mystery of it all? Well, I mean, I guess suppose you could step back and be very philosophical about this. And you could argue that this makes our interest in these kinds of things make sense from our Christian worldview, right? I mean, we have a sense that there's something broken about humanity. And and these shows will show you that brokenness. And, and I learned a long time ago, working cold cases is different than working serial killers. Ser- serial killers are messed up people that when you finally take them to jail... Their neighbors are like going, yeah, this is, I'm glad you took that guy. That guy's a nut job. Okay. He's always up all night over there. It smells bad. He's always digging holes in the backyard. What's the deal with that guy? <laughs> That's the kind of thing you hear with the serial killer. But a cold case guy is a guy who 30 years ago killed his wife. And then the next 30 years, he's living a regular life. 
Right. He's actually living sometimes a very, at least apparently on the outwardly honorable life where he's got a good job and he's got a good role to play in, in his community. And, and he feels like he's, you know, he looks, looks like he's just, a, a, he, sometimes these are deacons at your church or they're, mm. they're working, you know, at the fire department or they're working, you know, you see all kinds of regular people. Well, that, that's why are we interested in that? Because I think we go, wow, you know, we see ourselves in these, these, these people, right. we, we see ourselves in, in these characters. And, and that is, be, that really is explained by the Christian worldview that we are designed in the image of God and capable right. of great beauty, but so deeply flawed and fallen and rebellious that we often, and so every one of us is that, that cold case killer. Mm-hmm. I think that's part of it is we are fascinated with the depth of the human heart and we recognize ourselves in some of these folks. Mm. Or sometimes it's our pride, you know, where we just love that. Look, you know that all systems, all religious systems, except for Christianity, are works-based systems where your merit in front of God is earned by some set of good deeds or good works that you perform. Mm-hmm. And and we have a tendency to always fall back or incline toward that kind of system. Even when we are offered the grace that God offers through Christianity, we are inclined to want to earn our own salvation because that that's the, but one of the surest ways you can just separate yourself from others is to be able to look across the fence and say, that dude's not working as hard as I am. Mm-hmm. And I think we like some of these shows because we look and we say, that guy's worse than me. Yeah, I'm not that guy. And we, we have a tendency to do this as fallen humans. And that's why it's, I think we sometimes struggle as Christians with what, what God offers us. Because we know that there's, we're not meriting this. We're not earning this. We can't separate from others over it. And we can't, we have no right to come to God later and say, but God, I did this. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of us are inclined to want to do that. And when, when you watch these shows, this is a great place to, because let's face it, most of us would say, I, I, I might be messed up, but I'm not that messed up. Right. You know, right. and that gives us a certain sense of false comfort. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That. I, I totally agree. I mean, we're always looking around to see. Well, at least I'm better than them. You know, I'm not. I'm not putting antifreeze in my wife's sweet tea like like that person did on Dateline. So I feel better about myself. Yeah, and I think isn't that a shame that we have to? But 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 that does. There is a sense in which you see this throughout the Old Testament. You see over and over and over again that 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 we we fall back on this inclination to want to separate from others and and say that hey we're better because we earned it when that person did. Just like that. That Pharisee who's sitting in the back, right, who says, I'm not like that guy. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm not a sinner like that guy up there. Wow. And uh, that's, that's, that parable, I think, is such, is so illustrative of, I mean, clearly, when Jesus told that, um, it, 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 it rang a, a chord, it, it struck a chord with the hearers. So even then, this has always been our condition, our human condition, mm-hmm. right? I mean, wow. he could tell that and everyone would go, wow, yeah, that, that's, it was happening then, it's happening now, it's been happening since humans were on the face of the earth, mm-hmm. right? I mean, Cain looks, you look at, at well, whose offering is, is better than the other offering? Mm-hmm. You know, this has been going on since the moment there were people who could stand up on two feet. So, so I think that's part of the problem too, is that we are inclined to, to want to separate mm-hmm. and uh, these shows magnify that. Cain and Abel, the original cold case. Yep. Right there. Yep. There you go. Well, tell me this. Uh, you, your story is so fascinating because you go from atheist to Christian using your cold case skills, detective work. Let's just start off with this. What led you to be an atheist? Hmm. I always felt like atheism was the default position. <laughs> and I think a lot of atheists feel that way. Um, 
uh, now. I mean, that you talk to would, would say, "Look, you guys have this. You're making the case for the invisible spaghetti monster. You gotta, you gotta support your case." The default position is our position. We're we're the ones. We don't have to prove that there is no God. That's like proving a negative. You got to prove there is a God. Mm. And so I think that 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 is how I felt as well. And I just had such a bias. Remember, you know, uh, I'm 58, so. I was born in 1961 in the 60s. Um, I remember as a kid growing up on Star Trek, the first generation of Star Trek. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, there was a sense that um, that everything, we're, we're gonna, we were conquering huge uh, technological and scientific challenges. You know, we're on the moon. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that stuff happened in my, when I was a kid. And I, I just thought that science had an answer for everything, would actually have the answer for the things we don't have an answer for now. And, and I just also had a very, um, a very committed, uh, bias against the supernatural. Mm-hmm. So I would have just said, I, I can believe anything until you start jumping miracles in there. Cause once you do that, then I'm out. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's probably a, a lot of it. And I just didn't have also anybody in my life. Look, look, I think the part of the problem is that we don't often have, uh, examples around us of reasonable kind of well thought out people who actually um, could make a defense for their, I didn't know any Christians at all growing up, which is, they weren't in my life. Mm-hmm. So, so since I didn't know anybody to model that for me. And, and if I did, once I did start thinking about these issues and I got to high school and, and college, and then I was 35 before I ever took a really hard look at the Bible. And, and at 34, uh, the people I knew who were Christians were not able to make a reasonable defense. It seemed like they, they just said, Hey, you just got to, you have to take a step of faith that is all about blind trust. Mm-hmm. It felt that way, at least. And now they may not have said it those with those words, but but when I talked to them, mm-hmm. they they certainly didn't hold to the claims of Christianity the way you might hold to um, claims about a suspect or a case or a set of evidences that we're going to use to make a case. So that that to me was unappealing. So you reach this point in your life where you decide to do the work yourself and find out, is this stuff true? Walk us through that. You know, what was the, uh, what led you to that point? Um, and you know, what were some of the key pieces of evidence that really helped you? Well, uh, it was just really a kind of a selfish, um, I, I, when I was in high school, I had a, I had a professor, a, a instructor who a sociology teacher and he was a Baha'i. And so uh, he brought to me the, the written works of Baha'u'llah. Um, he knew I was, he, I, I think he just liked me. And so he, he brought me these, these works. And uh, I was just fascinated with them. Uh, they're proverbial statements. You know, Baha'u'llah was in custody when he wrote most of the Baha'i scripture. Uh, he wrote it in his own blood. And, and this is a guy who um, had some really profound things to say that were, to me were like fortune cookie statements. You could take a sentence or two from, from Baha'u'llah and, and stick it on the wall and go, oh, I'm a cool cat. You know, I got this stuff. Mm-hmm. I got this wisdom statement on the wall. And, and so I was interested in um, wise statements. I mean, I think we're fascinated, especially the more ancient they are. Mm-hmm. You go, wow, it's pretty profound. They were thinking that way back then. So the first pastor just pitched that I ever listened to had just pitched Jesus on that particular Sunday. He pitched Jesus as a smart guy, um, as a wise. He said a bunch of other stuff too, but that stuck with me. He actually said he was the smartest man who ever lived. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking at the time, um, well, why would he think that's true? 
so I bought a Bible just to see if that was true. The same way I would have been interested in the writing of Baha'u'llah. Don't believe Baha'i uh, faith is true. Uh, don't even doesn't need to be true. You can say a lot of smart things and think you're God, but the things you say might be why other people thought you were God because there were smart things you said. Mm -hmm. So if you can steal the wisdom of ancient sage, why wouldn't you do it? Uh, you might end up sounding smart yourself. So for a selfish reasons, I just wanted to know what it is he said mm -hmm. that was so smart, and that's why I went out and bought it. The, thinking, not knowing really the format of the New Testament. You know, I, I, I half expected it to be kind of like the Baha'i scripture, which is really more of a set of proverbial statements, right? Right. Because that would be easy, right? Just give me the wisdom. Like imagine if the, the Gospel of Thomas, right? It's just basically a collection of, of statements that are claimed to have been said by Jesus. That's kind of what I thought all of it was going to be. Mm -hmm. And so as I got to the Gospels and realized that these were uh, claims that people were making with the expectation that we would believe these events actually occurred, Right. That was that was something that was intriguing to me because that's very similar to working a cold case where you've got supplemental reports and you don't have any access to those witnesses anymore because they've all passed away. And heck, you don't even have any access to the report writers because they've all passed away. So now you've got these claims about the past, although it's only 50 years ago or 40 years ago or 35 years ago, still – how do you test those to see if any of that stuff is true? Well, it's the same thing you do with the gospel. So that's why I got interested in testing them. Hmm. So you make this journey of faith and at some point it's not just about a leap of faith, it's evidence. Um, I think we, we would probably agree on the same things, but tell our listeners that the two or three key pieces of evidence that really, really helped you take that, that step. Was it the New Testament writers? Was it the the empty tomb? What was it that did it for you? Well, it was all. It's all. For, so the whole thing for me is that uh, you, if you'd have asked me, Jim, can you take a step of faith? The answer would have been no. If you're defining faith as trusting in something for which I have no evidence, um, I just wasn't going to do that. But that's not what Jesus asked his followers to do. Mm -hmm. In fact, he often said, "If you don't believe what I'm telling you, at least believe on the evidence of the miracles I've worked in front of you." This is said over and over again in the Gospel of John. Uh, that's a very committed evidentialist. He's not saying, just accept what I'm telling you. I'm wise. I'm smarter than all the other rabbis, so you should trust me. No, he worked miracles first in almost every city that he entered. First you heal, then you herald. Why is it in that order? Why is it always that pattern? Because the miracles attested, as Peter says in Acts 2, the miracles attested to the man Jesus Christ. Mm. If you don't, if, He attested to his divinity but by the miracles. And, and so the, so the, for me, the, the bigger thing was, okay, so I have this account. I need to know. Remember, if you're going to lie about Jesus, the, the best way to lie, this is true for any eyewitness, the best thing to do if you want to lie about somebody is to wait till everyone who knows the truth is either dead or moved away. Because it's hard to lie in front of people who know the truth. Right. So the first thing I needed to know was, are these accounts written early enough to have been written by people who actually saw this stuff or written at a time that's so early that people who would have seen something different would know. I mean, the early dating in the Gospels was critical for me. Mm -hmm. it, are, are they early? Because if you just wait till everyone's dead, you can say anything you want. Now, now I don't necessarily care who writes these things. So people will say, well, how do you know that Mark is the author of Mark? And how do you know that, that Luke is the author of Luke and John's the author of John and Matthew's the author of Matthew? Who cares? Mm -hmm. I don't, I, the issue is, are they early? 
Mm-hmm. Somebody who's writing this, this, the people who write it claim to be writing them as people who saw the events. At least John, you see this over. It, John is saying that I could have written a lot more. I'm, I'm the one writing this account. Do I care if it's John the, 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 the disciple or John the apostle? To be honest, I just want to know, is it early enough to have been written really by an eyewitness? Because that will help me to know. It doesn't mean it's true, but it's the first step. And by the way, this is the first thing we check with real eyewitnesses in criminal trials are, are you early enough to have been, or were you actually there basically? Mm-hmm. Because people will say they're there and when in fact, they're just trying to help out a buddy. So, so I need to know, were you really there? And so that was one of the first things I had to, to investigate. And I think there's more than enough evidence. In the first time I was with you guys at your church, we talked about that a little bit. You know, why do we think these are early? Mm-hmm. And that issue of early dating is what kind of opened the door for me. When I realized these accounts were early enough to have either been written by eyewitnesses or at least to have been written in front of people who would know if they're a lie, uh, that was super helpful. Um, Mm -hmm. Also, I just suspected that these were changed over time because once you find out they're early, you're thinking, okay, well, yeah, but look, there's miracles in here. He didn't walk on water. Give me a break. So if if this is written early, I'll bet you the earliest version of this does not have that account. I'll bet you the earliest version is is basically consistent with philosophical naturalism. There's no miracles in the earliest versions. That would be my suspicion. If they are early, I'll bet you they, they sound and look a lot different than they do now. Mm-hmm. So that's the second thing I had to test is, did they change over time? Well, I can tell you that process takes time, but as I looked at that, and that a lot of that's going to be about textual evidence. You know, what kinds of manuscript evidence do we have for the New Testament? Uh, what what are the church fathers? Do we what do we know about the church fathers? In other words, do we know who the eyewitnesses discipled? Because then I could go to those people and say, well, what do they write about? Like, so if John's got students, what is what are John's students say that John said? Right, I could test and see if 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 John's students all right stuff about John's teaching, yet none of that stuff includes any miracles of Jesus, Hmm. then at least you would have a good reason to believe, yeah, that got added later. So a lot of this was about the transmission of the documents. We call this in criminal work, the chain of custody. So a lot of it for me was going through that same process that I go through with eyewitnesses to see, is it early? Did it change over time? Has it been honest and accurate? Uh, does it does it does is it reflecting any bias that on the part of the writer that would cause the writer to say something that's not true? These are the kinds of things I was trying to examine, um, and and so the problem I have when I try to describe this to others is that that typically um, there isn't a, when you're doing cumulative cases on circumstantial evidence for cold cases, and that's all they, they're always this way. They're always cumulative circumstantial cases. And when I say circumstantial, I just mean that there's two forms of evidence, direct and indirect. Direct evidence is eyewitnesses. Everything else is called indirect evidence, also known as circumstantial evidence. So actually DNA is indirect evidence. Mm -hmm. If it's not an eyewitness, it's indirect. Fingerprints are indirect evidence. So I make cases from cumulative uh, collections of indirect evidence. And um, that's what I did with the Gospels. And that's a very valid way to determine if something is true. Hmm. And that's what I did. So um, that was helpful for me to um, 
to be able to, but again, if you ask me, well, then what was the one thing, Jim? Well, you know, it's like, you can't ever do that with a cumulative case. It's like a hundred things. Right. It was the strength and the weight of a hundred things that just seemed to be unbearable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've heard Lee Strobel talk about, it's a treasure trove of resources or an embarrassment of riches when it comes to the evidence. Yeah, yeah, it is. And I think that part of it is helping. So a lot of what I do in these in these settings is I just spend time teaching people the rules of evidence because you know, it's it's, it's interesting to me that almost all apologetics books have some sense of uh case making, you know, mm-hmm. like a case for this, case for that, evidence that demands a verdict. Mm-hmm. You know, but 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 most of the time the people who write them have never been in front of a jury, mm-hmm. uh, in front of a, you know, a criminal jury to actually have to and so what's great about being in front of a criminal jury is that I get to to interview jurors after they render a verdict. Hmm. A bunch of them will usually stay. They're willing to be interviewed. And then I end up getting a chance to find out well what was persuasive. What wasn't persuasive? Wow, that's interesting. You know, and it's, it, that's really interesting to see what persuades people in these kinds of trials. So, is there a, is there a common denominator? Um, it's you'll be surprised sometimes what a juror will, and this is why we do large cumulative cases because you might think I I would might think okay, there's a hundred pieces of evidence we used here, and, and piece eighty seven is the this is the piece de resistance. You, you, this is the one piece of evidence that's going to knock everybody dead. And then you get into the, to the debrief and uh, you'll talk, you'll eventually circle around and wait for them to say their stuff. And then you'll circle around and ask them about piece 87. And you'd be surprised how many people will say, eh, not to me. <laughs> it wasn't that big a deal to me. I was actually thought piece 12 and you're thinking piece 12, that's a piece of junk. I mean, why would you care about piece 12? Well, this is why we use a hundred pieces because you just don't know with those 12 jurors, which piece is going to be persuasive based on their experience, based on their understanding. Maybe they have a special uh, set of knowledge that you didn't expect. So again, it's, it, it's helpful to, to, um, to use a huge case, a huge body of evidence uh, that's overwhelming in its totality because you don't know which of those pieces will be persuasive for your jury. Okay, let me ask you this question. On behalf of every person out there that either is a parent to or is married to someone who has walked away from their faith, what would you say to them about the best way to to help that person to, you know, because every person I talk to who has a family member that's walked away from their faith or is starting to, they want to just overwhelm them with evidence. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but sometimes that's not always the best way to go. No, uh, what do you say to people in that situation? Well, first know the person you're talking to mm-hmm. and don't, don't assume, you know, why they are having doubts or why they're making choices. And remember, there's three reasons why anyone rejects a truth claim. And it's easy to think that, and most of the time that, that what they'll voice to you is what sounds like rational. I call it about what, well, these are the reasons why people shun the truth. The first one is rational. That's kind of a play on words. They're shunning because they have rational doubts and they'll sound like evidence. I don't think you got enough evidence for this. I don't trust this piece of evidence. I don't trust that. Okay, fine. But even though people will typically want to voice their doubts from the perspective of rationality, because that always sounds better in a scientific age, the other two forms of doubt, uh, the motivations, I think are more dominant, are more uh, prevalent. And the second one is, 
emotional. So they're shunning because they have an emotional problem with somebody they met in the church. Maybe my parent was a, a Christian and, and I, th- I saw hypocrisy. I don't like this or that. Okay, fine. So now you are uh, rejecting a claim based on not the evidence, but on some rational objection that you I'm sorry, some emotional objection you have to a person. Mm-hmm. That's very different. Mm-hmm. The third one, I think, is even the most of all. This is the most dominant of all, and that is volitional, hmm. that you're shunning the truth because you don't want it to be true. Mm. And and so, and that sometimes comes because, you know what? I'm involved in a relationship right now that I'd rather be involved in than worry about whether it's proper. Or I've got a, I, I, all of us are driven to be our own God, to want to be able to make our own choices. This is why young people, if you think about it, if you can give a young person a, a worldview structure that allows them to account for how they got here and find some level of purpose in their lives, but also allows them to sleep with their girlfriend without feeling bad about it. Mm-hmm. Folks like that are typically going to want to make a move in that direction, right? Because this, this is, they've got volition. They want to, they, they willfully want to reject a claim that seems to inhibit their, their natural desires, uh, their fallen desires. Yeah. So, so what happens is you have to know your, your, your loved one well enough to know which of these three areas. And then you don't spend time hammering that area. You know, you don't say, <laughs> well, I know the reason why you don't want to believe this because you're sleeping with your girlfriend. That's not what you do. I mean, you have to be able to ask good questions. You know, one of the questions that, that Frank Turek and I have been asking in the last two years has simply been, hey, if, if Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? Hmm. That's a good question to ask. Well, Christianity is not true. No, that's not okay. It's like it's a thought experiment. Just go with me for a second. If if we could, if if all the documents about Jesus were found to be entirely reliable, would you follow him? Hmm. That's a good question to ask because a lot of people will say no, mm-hmm. and then you know where the problem is. It's not a head issue; it's a heart issue. Mm-hmm. So sometimes it's, you want to be diagnostic and just ask good questions and and be patient. That, that thing is be patient. Um, you know, it is harder when if if the thing that's driving somebody is a relationship with a with a girlfriend or a boyfriend, um, that is harder. And I've seen people convert their entire worldview understanding based on a, a spouse that they, they end up marrying. Like they'll be Christians their whole life, and then they'll marry a Mormon, and now they're in the Mormon Church. Mm-hmm. And this is really not about what the the veracity of Christian claims or the veracity of Mormon claims. This is really just about. They found the person of their life, and and this is how they're going to make that work. And this is also true for people who don't believe. Mm. If if so, that's why you know the biggest the biggest challenge we have as parents is helping our our young people um, find the right friends, find the right spouses. You know, I often say that that there's uh, I teach at Summit Worldview Conference, which is in Manitou Springs, Colorado, and it's all high schoolers. Seven sessions of 180 high schoolers who come to learn Christian worldview, mm-hmm. and I love it. And it's uh, one of my favorite things. And I, I get a chance on the porch when it's all done to talk to these students, and I often ask them, "Hey, you know, some decisions are more important than other decisions." Uh, for example, uh, I call these trajectory decisions. If, if you are launching a rocket to the moon and you make a two degree error in your trajectory, but you're only a mile from the moon, you're almost there. Well, that two degree error is not going to keep you from landing on the moon. But if you make the same two degree error back here on earth, you'll miss the moon by thousands of miles. Some decisions are like that. Like you need to make these early in life. 
And if you make the wrong, you know, that two degree error you make might cause a complete different trajectory in your life. So tell me, students, what do you think are the trajectory decisions? Mm. And they'll usually say things like, well, you know, uh, college choices, what am I going to do with my life, purpose, studying, uh, what career might I, uh, sometimes we'll say, well, what ministry does God have for me? Um, But almost nobody will say what I'm going to say, which is, no, those are all good and important decisions to make. But the most important trajectory decision you're going to make in the next year or two or three or four is going to be spouse, Mm. period. Because you can pick the right job and the right ministry, but you pick the wrong spouse, you're in for a train wreck. Yeah, You can pick the right spouse and the wrong ministry and the wrong job, and you're still going to have a great life. Oh, that's so true. So I, I think that spouse is something that is, and I think a lot of, of, of skepticism, it, it starts with relational, you know, um, with relationships that, that draw you in one direction or another. You know, if you, if you found the love of your life and she's a committed Christian, chances are pretty good that, that you're going to end up being a committed Christian too. Mm-hmm. Eventually. Okay. Last question for you. Um, yeah. <clears throat> If somebody's out there listening to this and they're beginning to walk away from their faith because of rational issues, uh, not emotional, okay. not just uh, you know trading up or trading down when it comes to choices in life, okay, but rational stuff. They've they've read a few things, they've heard a few podcasts, they sure. maybe they're subscribing to some of the new atheists and what those guys are saying. Um, what would you tell them to do to begin to process this? Maybe it's something to read, something to ask, something to think through. Okay. Um, I think that, there, that you don't need to buy anything, number one. Uh, there's so much material online. But, but remember, you have to make choices about your – part of it is, is there's so much material online, it's hard to make choices about who you would trust. And I, and I certainly get that. But I would just say this. There is a sense at some point that on, on, from the lips of atheists that are online – uh, that that really the entire burden of proof is on on Christians, and there's no way that you could ever provide the kind of evidence that they would accept that there's a divine, invisible being that is in charge of the universe. So I get that, but just I was asked to keep one open mind on this. Everyone shares the burden of proof. It's not just on Christians. Here's why: the burden of proof does not. It works like this: you go to a crime scene and you look over the yellow tape and you look in that crime scene. And I'm there with five partners and a sergeant. We have a big team. We get to this murder scene. We're looking over the tape, and I can look at the evidence in the crime scene and I can say, you know what? I think the husband did it. Now that's my claim. I have to make an inference from the evidence in the crime scene. And I think the most reasonable inference is the husband. So I state that. My partner says, no, you're crazy. It's a coworker. Okay. He, he's making a different inference from the same evidence. We both share a burden. I have to make a case in front of my team as to why I think it's the husband. He has to make a case in front of the team as to why I think it's the coworker. We share a burden of proof. Now, look, we live in a universe and there's stuff in the universe, just like there's stuff in a crime scene. And everyone has an obligation to explain it based on their worldview. Hmm. As I look in the crime scene of the universe, what I see is we are in a universe that has a beginning that appears to be fine-tuned for carbon-based existence, carbon-based life. And that life emerges from non-life. That origin of life issue is very big. And when it does emerge, it appears to be, even Richard Dawkins, the famed evolutionary biologist who's an atheist, says that biology appears to be designed for a purpose. But he doesn't think it is. But at least he will acknowledge it appears to be. And we have 
immaterial minds in a material universe in which we are no more than just brains. We have minds. That's different than your brain. Right. And your mind is thinking about these things right now. And you are making free choices, free agency. How do you get free agency in a universe that is entirely physical? If it is, it's just dominoes following at the behest of the prior domino that falls against it. That means that your neurons are firing in your brain and you have no control over the prior neurons. And there's a, a very popular atheist named Sam Harris, who's a neuroscientist who believes you do not have a mind, you just have a brain, and he rejects free agency because he knows he has to as a committed atheist. Mm-hmm. Also, we have objective moral truths. We know it's never okay to torture babies for fun. That's objectively true. It's not a matter of my opinion or your opinion. Where do we get these things from? And finally, we sense there's a a standard of righteousness that when it gets violated, we call this evil. But how? where's the standard of righteousness we're drawing from to call something objectively evil? Here's my point. These are eight things that I see in the universe that you have to explain if you're a Christian. And you have to explain them if you're an atheist. The problem is, and I would challenge you, there is no way to explain those eight things under atheism. Mm -hmm. It's not like, oh, we're close. No. And you will see, it's not like, well, we've got a theory, a single theory. No, you don't. Because on atheism, there's like eight different ways to explain the origin of the universe. There's like eight different ways to explain the fine tuning. And why are there eight? Because the other seven guys know that that your way doesn't work. (laughs) Mm-hmm. None of these ways work. That's why they got so many theories, because none of them work. Now, there is one unified way to explain our existence in a universe in which we really should not exist. And that would be if there's a God who's designed us. And by the way, if there's a God who's designed you, who has is so powerful that like under Big Bang cosmology, right, the standard cosmological model is that all space, time, and matter came into existence from nothing. Now, think about that. That means whatever is causing space, time, and matter, it cannot be spatial, material, or temporal. It caused that stuff. That stuff wasn't there before it caused it. Mm-hmm. Now, if that's a God, if there's a God out there that did that, who's that powerful, he has the power to eliminate moral imperfection. That means he's a morally perfect God. He also would have the power to walk on water. He'd have the power to rise from the grave. He'd have the power to forgive sin. And if you think you can be united to a God like that, based on your good works, we don't worship a good God. We worship a perfect God. I've had good days, but I've never had a perfect day. Hmm. And so we have a problem. If we live beyond this, and your existence of your mind alone should demonstrate to you that you're more than just a material being. You're more than just a brain. You have a mind. Mm -hmm. And you're more than just a body. You have a soul. Your body, your brain, they will die. It may be under the coronavirus, but mm-hmm. your brain and your soul will not. Your, your, your mind and your soul will not. And that means we've got good reason to believe there's a life after this one. Mm. Only problem is we're trying to unite with a perfect designer, a perfect being as imperfect creatures. And there is where the gospel answers the problem. Mm-hmm. Because it turns out that the only way to, to solve this problem is to adopt the perfection of God. That's what he, he didn't send somebody else to die in your place. He came to die in your place. That's a huge, huge promise. And it makes sense, right? Because it's not like he took another imperfect man and stuck him on a cross for you. Right. He decided as the perfect being to do this for us so that when he looks at us, he sees the perfection of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Right, Not that we're ever going to be practically perfect because we're not. We're going to still mess up. I get that. But we are positionally perfect. Hebrews tells us we are made perfect right now, but that's not 
practical perfection. That's positional perfection. And that's what the, what the gospel says to us. And that makes sense because if there is a God that has that kind of power, then none of your good works would merit being united to perfection. That would none of your good works would ever measure up. And this is the one thing that separates Christianity from every other worldview, including atheism. Under atheism, there is no grace. It's a dog-eat-dog world. If you can eat faster than the next guy, you will go farther. Under Christianity, we recognize that whatever is out there that caused all of this, it's too powerful to be impressed with your 25 cents. Hmm. Brilliant. Jim, if people want to get a hold of you, read more of your stuff, hear from you, how how do they find that? Well, I, we try to write a lot and produce content that is free because we know we're in coronavirus uh, as it is now. People are, are stuck inside and can probably use some resources. So it's all at coldcasechristianity.com. And really, our focus has shifted in the last two or three years toward kids. And we have a kids academy for 8 to 12-year-olds at casemakersacademy.com. That's great, Jim. Always, always a treat. Thank you so much for joining us and hope to see you very, very soon. Really appreciate it, buddy. Thanks, brother. I appreciate it. You know how much I appreciate you personally, Rusty. Thanks so much. Thank you. Well, thanks so much for joining us. If you have not already signed up or subscribed uh, to the podcast, make sure you do that. If you've not subscribed to the newsletter, just go to pastorrustygeorge.com and we'll be able to get that to you. And that way you never miss a blog, an update, a new event, or a podcast. Thanks so much for listening. And as always, act justly, love mercy, walk humbly with your God.